0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights, all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Squawk Box with Juliana Tattlebaum and me, Jeff Cutmore. Let's get into your headlines. Major U.S. indices breaking a three-day losing streak as tensions between Russia and Ukraine appear to ease boosting Asian markets too, with the Nikkei leading gains. Crew prices tread water on Moscow's apparent troop withdrawal, but the US and its allies remain on alert, with President Biden issuing a stark message to the Kremlin.
1: The West is united and galvanized. Our NATO allies and the alliance is as unified and determined as it has ever been. The source of our unbreakable strength continues to be the power Resilience and universal appeal of our shared democratic values.
2: Chinese price pressures ease as inflation data comes in weaker than expected. But factory prices still jump over 9% on the year. And ECB board member Francois Villeroy-Degalo de tells CNBC the central bank could wind down its asset purchasing program, but downplays any suggestion of a rate hike in the near term.
3: Forward guidance is important to give clarity, but it should not go so far as tying our hands. Any speculation about the calendar of a possible liftoff, referring to your question, is for me premature.
0: So very good morning everybody. Let's um, talk about the markets a little bit here because I think the markets probably are the biggest story of the day depending on what we see later on in the news flow. The relief rally took a lot of people by surprise very early on in the session yesterday you remember we were stood here at the wall and we looked at a negative open for the European markets and then we started to get these flashes through uh, from IFAC suggesting that Russian troops that had been on military maneuvers were actually returning back to their barracks some of them at least but an awful lot of appropriate caution about exactly what that meant and a lot of Western leaders like President Biden suggesting actually it's too too early to get too excited about these reports having said all of that the relief in the market was palpable and you can see from the performance that we put in yesterday on the US markets that there was a a, a desire to uh, pick up stock after several days of pullbacks. Let's just focus on some of the areas where the main buying was focused and as you might imagine uh, those travel stocks actually got a bit of support here with the uh, markets believing that ultimately we wouldn't see significant international disruption to flight paths and travel arrangements. The oil stocks, it was a different story wasn't it? We saw the uh, energy sector actually take out some of the risk premium that had been built in recently to the headline oil price also uh, you saw that then trickle down into the majors with Exxon uh, down one and a quarter of one percent here um, bit of a punch on the nose uh, for our friend Mr Buffett uh, we talked yesterday on that 13F filing about increasing the stake in Chevron the uh, stock is down uh, three quarters of one percent as you can see in ConocoPhillips also taking some of that shared pain. In terms of the uh, headline oil price, uh, the market fundamentals still continue to support, it would seem, uh, this uh, representation of a tightness of supply and still strong demand in economies post-COVID. Those that seem to have got on top at least of Omicron and are starting to Reopen and have these uh, strong demands for um, oil, for industry, and for transport. So, WTI crude 92.25. Just a, a little bit of pause and reflection, I think, on where the risk premium meets actual global demand. So, the treasury market uh, what did we see then? We saw a positive day largely for the equity markets in terms of the uh, price action for the treasuries. A sort of reversion to what we'd seen previously: money steadily moving its way out of uh, the treasury market, just to avoid, obviously, the consequence of being caught the wrong side of a significant rate hike in March from the Federal Reserve. That puts us back in the two percent range for the te- uh, for the ten-year note, and as you can see, the two-year sitting around that one spot five six level. Um, let's have a look at the Asia markets. There was a um, Very interesting piece of uh, PPI, CPI data coming out of China. And I just want to flag this up to you because uh, we're going to be talking about UK inflation later on through the morning as we uh, wait on those numbers, but we had some PPI data from the states overnight, and everybody leapt on that and said, "Well, this is the PPI jumping the most we've seen in eight months." Uh, things like food and drink prices and patient outcare were cited as the reasons for this significant jump. But it just added fuel to the fire for those who see that PPI then coming through and translating into higher. CPI. When it came to the Chinese data, and we'll uh, talk to Sam Vardas about that a little bit later on, but ultimately the CPI in at 0.9%, 0.9%. We've been talking about inflation numbers at the headline level in Europe in the fives plus, and uh, similar for the United States, of course, Um, but CPI in China, 0.9%, and the PPI number in at 9.1%. That obviously looks like a high number, but it is illustrative of a trend that appears to have topped at this stage. Too early to call it, perhaps, but that's what we see in the trend on the numbers, and those numbers were lower than expected so that's probably giving a little bit of support here to the greater chinese markets the Cosby, they've got an interesting political story unfolding in korea at the moment around the elections take a look at that if you're interested in the politics in korea and a bit of support here as you can see again for the miners and back uh, a bit back into the australian market at this stage uh, and i think Juliana, as we were discussing yesterday it, it is that sense of uh, relief that I think has supported uh, a move back into uh, the markets. Uh, the, the risk on uh, opportunity I think perceived after several days of falling prices. Of course this is a very short term movement but at the moment it, it does feel as though the markets are benefiting from this uh, suggestion of an easing intentions. Whether that is what is really going on, we will have to wait and see of course when we hear more from President Putin and other world leaders going forward.
2: Well certainly whether or not those uh, reports yesterday that offered this more optimistic view of the way forward do prove true or not or accurate or not the fact is that markets did react quite swiftly to uh, what happened what happens in Ukraine and the Russia Ukraine situation that was certainly a takeaway in my view of the market action we saw yesterday the Ukraine conflict matters for markets. It matters for European and U.S. markets. Um, another thing that we discussed yesterday, Jeff, on the show with the global chief strategist from Credit Suisse, uh, a point that you picked up on around their tactical overweight in cash. Um, I found an interesting stat from the Bank of America's latest fund manager survey that actually that um, guest yesterday was not alone. We have seen investors ramp up their holdings of cash over the last month. Currently, average cash holdings among investors stands at 5.3%. That's up from 5% in January. Um, And, you know, Jeff, your point yesterday, pressing that strategist, is cash really where you want to be, especially if you're trying to justify fees to your investors, if you are a big fund manager?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, cash represents a number of things, doesn't it? Cash represents optionality, as they describe it. So if you see... Uh, opportunities where you think there is mispricing by the market you have some dry powder to go and take advantage of that cash also does something else for you doesn't it? it gives you a certain amount of uh... sense of security if what you actually think is going on here is a federal reserve or a central banking community that is well behind the curve that ultimately will see western economies and particularly the united states start to slip not necessarily into recession but into a lower growth glide path even as the central banks continue to fight inflation and there's some some interesting um, uh, uh, views out there i think in the strategist. Community as to whether actually the Fed will be able to complete the implied cycle of rate hikes through the rest of this year, given how quickly they think some of these higher price pressures are going to translate into reduced consumer activity. Right now, it's not clear, so maybe just going to a little bit of cash or at least raising your weighting in the portfolio, Juliana, is a sensible thing to do if you are concerned that we might revert to some of the sub-trend growth that we saw actually ahead of the whole um, uh, crisis uh, around uh, um, this Omicron and, and Delta variant.
2: I do wonder to what extent these increased cash holdings are precisely a reflection of the, the, the scenario you outlined, where we see growth take a hit later in the year, and it is actually a, a high conviction um, overweight in cash, or whether investors are just being cautious and they've been burnt and bruised over the last several weeks of market volatility. Um, perhaps something we can pick up again later in this show, but now on to the latest around the Ukraine situation. Russian President Vladimir Putin has made a first move to de escalate tensions with the West, promising to partially pull back troops deployed near the Ukraine border. The Russian leader said that he was seeking a diplomatic path to resolve the tensions. Now, the White House welcomed the possibility, but warned an invasion could still happen. It came as Ukraine's defense ministry and some banks were knocked offline a, in an apparent cyber attack, which Kiev appeared to blame on Moscow. Now, speaking at the Kremlin, after a meeting with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, President Putin said he was open to negotiations with NATO members to resolve the standoff.
4: We have the NATO
0: infrastructure directly in our backyard. Moreover, the question on Ukraine's entrance is being discussed. They say it will not be tomorrow. Then when? The day after tomorrow? What does it change for us in a historical perspective? Absolutely nothing. We can hear that Ukraine is not ready today for joining NATO. We know this thesis. They say at the same time that it won't be omitted tomorrow, that it will be omitted when it will be prepared for this. But for us, it can be late. Therefore, we want to resolve this issue now, right now, in the near future, during the negotiating process.
2: President Biden promised to defend NATO members with, quote, full force amid the crisis on the Ukraine border. Biden pledged his support to the alliance's collective defense rule, known as Article 5, where an attack against one NATO country means an attack against all members. The president also repeated that his administration is open to talks with the Kremlin. Biden says he is not seeking a direct confrontation with Russia, but is ready to hit back with economic sanctions, including potentially shutting down a key gas pipeline.
1: If Russia proceeds, we will rally the world to oppose its aggression. The United States and our allies and partners around the world are ready to impose powerful sanctions on export controls, including actions that did not, we did not pursue when Russia invaded Crimea in eastern Ukraine in 2014. We'll put intense pressure on their largest and most significant financial institutions and key industries. These measures are ready to go as soon as if Russia moves. We'll impose long-term consequences. We'll undermine Russia's ability to compete economically and strategically. And when it comes to Nord Stream 2, the pipeline that would bring natural gas from Russia to Germany, If Russia further invades Ukraine, it will not happen.
2: Sylvia joins us now in Brussels, where the NATO defense ministers meet today to discuss the ongoing crisis. Sylvia, what exactly is on the agenda? What are um, these NATO defense ministers going to be discussing today and weighing up?
5: Well, there are different issues on the table and, of course, the big focus, Juliana, is understanding whether or not Russia is actually withdrawing some of its military troops. I have to say, though, that the comments that we have received over the last 24 hours do suggest that there's a lot of doubt here in Brussels about what, about whether that's actually the case. For instance, we heard from NATO's Jens Stoltenberg on Tuesday, and he said that NATO has seen in the past Russia removing some of its military troops but leaving equipment on the ground and then returning to these positions later on. And so Jens Stoltenberg said on Tuesday that at this moment they have not seen any de-escalation.
4: There are signs from Moscow that uh, diplomacy should continue. This gives grounds for cautious optimism. But so far we have not seen any sign of de-escalation on the ground. Russia has amassed a fighting force in and around Ukraine unprecedented since the Cold War. Everything is now in place for a new attack. But Russia still has time to step back from the brink, stop preparing for war, and start working for a peaceful solution.
5: Now this opinion was also shared by the United States Ambassador to NATO, Julianne Smith. She also said on Tuesday that these reports and these comments from Russia about potentially withdrawing some of its troops need to be verified. All we have seen, unfortunately, is escalation. We've seen Russia move forces closer to the border of Ukraine in greater and greater number. We've seen some of the enablers arriving on the scene, the pre-positioning of equipment. We've seen various supporting elements arriving there very close to the border, both in Belarus and on the border uh, of Russia's border with Ukraine. We have also noticed today that Russia is claiming that they are moving towards some sort of de-escalation. We are monitoring the situation. You may remember in late December last year, Russia made a similar claim that at the moment, I think it was the last week of December, that Russia was de-escalating. At that moment, when we went in to verify, we actually found no signs of that. So NATO officials have described the mood at the moment as cautious optimism. And this optimism, Jeff, comes from the fact that Russia has not yet closed the door to diplomatic conversations, not because of the reports, of the comments that it is indeed withdrawing troops from close to the border of Ukraine. So let's see what will happen there, whether this is actually verified in the coming days.
0: Sylvia, terrific. We'll catch up with you a little bit later on. Thanks so much for the coverage. Still to come on the programme this morning, France's central bank governor says the ECB is keeping all options on the table as the pressure continues to mount for it to wind up asset purchases. We'll bring you Annette's exclusive interview in just a few moments.
2: Welcome back to the program. A Republican boycott has held up a vote on President Biden's five Federal Reserve appointments. GOP senators are wary of the nomination of Sarah Bloom Raskin as the vice chair for supervision, demanding more information on her previous work for fintech company Reserve Trust. The delay also impacts the reappointment of Fed Chair Jerome Powell and would-be vice chair Lyle Brainerd. The White House released a statement on Tuesday calling Raskin one of the most qualified Fed nominations ever, adding that Republican attacks are unfair and unfounded. Onto that U.S. PPI data that Jeff mentioned, U.S. producer prices rose 9.7% year-on-year in January, driven by the surging cost of hospital care, food, and cars. On the month, prices increased 1%, twice as much as expected, marking the biggest monthly jump since May. Even when excluding food and energy, core producer prices increased 0.9% month-on-month. For more on the U.S. economy, our U.S. colleagues will be speaking to Bank of America chairman and CEO Brian Moynihan. Don't miss that interview at 1500 CET. And on to the latest out of China. Factory inflation has hit a six-month low amid fresh COVID restrictions and government efforts to cool rising raw material costs. Consumer price data also missed expectations, rising by 0.9%.
0: Jeff? ECB executive board member, Isabel Schnabel, says the property boom in parts of the Euro area must be factored into the central bank's next inflation forecast. Adding such a move would have a quote, substantial effect on measured inflation. Schnabel's comments made to the Financial Times will pile the pressure on the ECB to begin winding down its stimulus programme. House prices are up almost nine percent for the year. In the euro area, but unlike the U.S. and the U.K., they do not make up part of the ECB's inflation data. Well, Schnabel is the latest high-profile figure within the ECB to weigh in on its ongoing stimulus program ahead of next month's governing council meeting. More dovish governors, including Italy's Ignazio Visco and Finland's Olli Rehn, have played down the long-term inflationary risks and any need to begin tightening soon. But calls for Christine, Chris. But calls for President Christine Lagarde to act have been growing louder among the hawks as inflation continues to hit record levels, with the Netherlands, class not, last week throwing down the gauntlet and calling on the ECB to raise rates by the end of the year. Well, let's uh, talk some more about the uh, ECB story. France's central bank governor, Francois Villeroy de Gallo, has told CNBC in an exclusive interview that the ECB's asset purchase program, or APP, could be wound down by the third quarter if market conditions allow. However, de Gallo stressed the ECB must keep all options on the table when it comes to its next policy move and refuse to commit to any rate hike timeline. Annetta sat down with France's central bank governor and asked him how the European central bank can prevent fragmentation in the eurozone when it ultimately takes on a hawkish policy shift.
3: We said clearly in our December meetings that flexibility would remain a key word in our path towards a gradual monetary normalization. I would say that optionality and flexibility go hand in hand on this path. It could happen through PEP, through its reinvestment. We could also resume net asset purchases in PEP under certain conditions. But it's a more general principle, uh, and we should have... Uh, in our virtual toolbox some contingent options to to address flexibility. Let me stress one last element on that. Gradualism helps, obviously, to prevent market overreactions. And as long as we have a very important balance sheet with reinvestments, we have a strong presence on the markets, it also helps to prevent destabilizing effects or overreactions.
6: But if you're seeing yields rising further, would that um, be a concern for you and the ECB? Because clearly financing costs will be higher for many countries.
3: Uh, Again, our aim is price stability. We make monetary decisions. We have a monetary stance and then we have to ensure the right monetary transmission. If we see unwarranted phenomenon, and let me stress these two words, both are important, Uh, then we would act. And we have several examples in the past where we were efficient. By the way, we have now 20 years of the euro as cash for citizens. It's a success, a huge success, through several crises. So I think the ECB played its role in managing monetary policy in this very specific environment successfully. So we have the trust of European citizens. It's also due to this track record.
0: Very interesting comments. Let's get to Anetta on this uh, story. Anetta, terrific interview here. Uh, I have one question. I mean, the ECB has tried to keep a vice-like grip on communications to make sure everybody is on the same place when it comes to the message around monetary policy and potential easing here. Um, do we think that um, this is coordinated communication? from these more dovish speakers or are they speaking out of turn given what we've heard from Christine Lagarde?
6: I think if it comes to the governing council, it's coordinated, the the executive part of the governing council, it's coordinated uh, communication because uh, nobody wanted what happened after the last press conference. That was a miscommunication or communication mishap. Um, So the markets were spooked and priced into rate hikes, which clearly was not um, what the ECB wanted to trigger as a market reaction, and that's why we've seen so much back paddling also from Christine Lagarde but also Isabel Schnabel and Philip Lane who all uh, reiterated that gradualism and that the market is getting ahead of itself Uh, But let me bring you back to that interview, because I think it's clearly also testing the waters that someone from the governing council and also uh, with Willow Radu one of the most influential uh, central bankers in the Eurozone next to the new Bundesbank president uh, is stepping out and calling for an end of APP as soon as the third quarter, because clearly it's all about sequencing, but still it's also all about exiting the net asset purchases, because clearly in the forward guidance which the ECB has said it.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news you can head to cnbc.com.
4: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.